One second, I'm trying to move your your. Uh... There we go. Okay, cool. Don't move my cheese. <laughs> that's <laughs> Come on, that's a management lesson we've all learned now. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Did you ever read that book? Um, I, I own that book. <laughs> <laughs> Was it? So I, I think, uh, somewhere around 87% of all copies of who moved my cheese were given to someone by someone else. <laughs> um, Are you in the 87% or in the 13? I don't know. I think I might be in the 13%. <laughs> oh, so I don't know what that says about me as a person, but yeah, always exceeding expectations. <laughs> Kyle Daigle. Yeah, yeah, or something. <laughs> All right, so this was a good intro. To, we're just going to start the episode because we're not going to beat that as a charismatic opening. Okay. <laughs> and plus we rehearsed it for like four days straight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, this is going to be the first episode released with the two of us after after last week's awkward botch by me. So I'm going to, yeah, exactly. So first things first, uh, let's do a proper introduction from here forward. We're going to call this season two, at least season two of Sean's, uh, uh, rain on the Ruby on rails podcast. Uh, this is season two, episode one. And for season two, uh, Kyle Daigle will be joining me as co-host, which I'm thrilled about. Hey, Kyle. Hey, introduce yourself, sir. Hey, so uh, my name is Kyle Daigle. I'm a software developer at GitHub. Uh, I've been doing Ruby on Rails for a, a fair bit of time now, and I live in Connecticut with my wife and son. You embarrass your neighbors with your productivity regularly? <laughs> yes. <laughs> my neighbors comment on why my office lights are on so late. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and, and why you're doing such an effective job, like, uh, hiring services to do things to your yard and whatnot. Hey, what can I say? You know, <laughs> I know, I know where my skills. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, a quick overview of why, uh, why a co-host for season two. So season one of, of my period on the show was all about having guests and it was great. I think I did about 40, uh, 45 episodes or so, maybe about 38 different people. And it was awesome. I, I met tons of interesting people had tons of good conversations, uh, and I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, the parts that I didn't enjoy were scheduling it every week, which was, uh, uh, a little challenging sometimes. And I think I also didn't enjoy that. It was difficult to go into detail on topics sort of week to week to week. Like every week was a bit like groundhog day, right? Starting over. And, uh, so this year is, is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be easier to schedule though. Kyle and I have not made that obvious in the first <laughs> week or two. And I hope that we can go deeper on topics and talk a little bit more about current events, which I think is interesting, which was a little harder to do in the, uh, interview format. So there we are. The, uh, the elephant in the room is, is last episode. So it's, it's not, <laughs> I don't have it. To, uh, but it, I went into a big spiel at the beginning of our first uh, episode about how if it didn't get released, it was because Kyle was lousy. Because uh, at least twice, maybe three times before, there was an episode that didn't get released because there was something awkward that happened with the guest, usually that would have made them look not good. And uh, I didn't release those episodes and never really addressed why with the uh, <laughs> with the guest. And then... Uh, <laughs> And then last week we uh, recorded episode one of season two, and then I didn't release it. 
Yeah, and so when I was looking at Twitter and just like, oh, I wonder when the episode's coming out, and then it never really came out, I got really nervous. Yeah, so so we, so Kyle, we've got to talk about something. Uh oh. <laughs> no, I totally screwed it up. So I I like the audio was destroyed, like was totally garbled by uh, a mistake that I made in the recording. And oh. yeah, exactly. But I've decided that I think that that was uh, that was for the best because you were great last episode. I was not on my my A game, so so <laughs> we can just chuck that one, frankly, and uh, you know redo. Okay, it's a good warm up episode. I think that that's probably better, anyhow. Like you don't have yeah. your you don't have your dress rehearsal, you know, performed live in front of your audience. So exactly, neither should we. Okay, so uh, uh, we're going to try out this format, which is we assembled a handful of topics for for the week. Uh, the basic format will be handful of news uh, items or things that we ran across this week that may not be timely to the rest of the world, but they were timely to us for whatever reason. And then hopefully, if we contribute to anything open source related or even even similar to that, then we'll we'll talk a little bit about our contributions at the end. So okay, we've got what four four topics i think that we uh maybe five that we made note of during the week what do you want to start with um so i'd like to start with the adam 1.0 get the buzz marketing out of the way <laughs> yeah i oh well, i agree i actually had moved that to the top of the list after i sa- i pasted it into slack awesome uh so let's talk adam now you're you work at github so i feel like you're you're in a unique position to talk about it. Um, yeah. So disclaimer, I have nothing to do with Adam except for the fact that my employer also employs the people who work on Adam. So I don't uh, personally work on it at all. I don't know um, if that's a I disclaimer have... or like a non disclaimer. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of both depending on what you're worried about. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, uh, I have been using it for uh, a very long time, longer than it's been uh, publicly released. So I am a I am an avid user of it, at least. You're a hipster, avid user of Adam. Yeah, I, I knew about it before you did. So <laughs> I'm just saying. I've used it since the beginning. So let's talk about for for those that don't use Adam, uh, give the give the sort of once over description of what it is. Yeah, sure. So I mean. Um, I, I highly recommend actually uh, you watch a video uh, that uh, defunct Chris Wanstroth, the CEO of GitHub, uh, give a talk at CodeConf, which was a GitHub-sponsored conference in Nashville a week ago. Um, he does a really good explanation about why he wanted to build it and then got people uh, to work on it as GitHub gr- uh, grew. But the main idea was that there was Emacs, there was Vim, and um, but there was nothing really that used JavaScript to truly, you know, drive its engine. Uh, a JavaScript seems to be like the common denominator of languages nowadays. So he wanted something that everyone could really hop into and not have to learn like Vim script or some sort of esoteric language. And the other thing that's really big is um, open source. So Adam is an open source uh, text editor that is based on JavaScript and CSS. Um, and so if you do anything on the web, it's pretty simple to, you know, sort of massage an existing, uh, package or a sort you know, piece of source code within Atom itself to do what you want instead of having to learn a, uh, you know, whole nother quasi language to, to futz with your text editor. Um, and so it's, uh, it's been going on for, I think about a year now in the public sphere. And then, uh, just, uh, a week ago or so, uh, GitHub announced Atom 1.0, uh, 
which was a big, uh, you know, sort of stabilization effort of the API. So if you have any interest at all in, in using Atom, uh, you know, on Windows, Linux, Mac, and, and you want to uh, make your text editor work the way you want without having to learn a language that you potentially do not know, uh, it's definitely a, a great project to jump onto. Yeah, I totally agree. So I've used Atom since... I think I switched uh, to full-time to Adam, I don't know, within a month of when it came out, maybe even mm-hmm. less, maybe two weeks. And my reason is really straightforward, which is that, uh, well, I think it's it's twofold. One, uh, not using an open source editor seems totally off to me. So if there's an open source alternative, uh, and then there are, obviously, then I'm going for it. And the second reason I think you sort of alluded to, but didn't say directly, which is that I find the, let's call it the Vim Emacs options to be kind of hostile. And while I like, I kind of learned Vim well enough that I could deal. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I ever became exactly a disciple or anything, but I was fine at it. But when I looked at other people joining the programming community and then looked at sort of the Vim on-ramping experience, it just, it just felt to me like it was almost intentionally harsh. Um, and it just didn't seem like the kind of thing that I would want my community to offer as the sort of starting experience for anyone that's going to have to type text. Um, so, you know, the combination of, I always support open source, give or take, and, you know, I, I like for the community to be welcoming and I don't like for the tools that everyone uses to be so, you know, hostile. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I think Vim's kind of hostile. Um, so, so, you know, the combination of those two things made Adam like an obvious thing to get behind, you know, plus, plus yeah, I kind of like, get I, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I've never really given Vim it's, it's fair shot. Um, I think that there's a lot to Vim that I think makes it extremely powerful. And if your, uh, you know, your brain is willing to acquiesce to its, you know, command structure, I think it is still very powerful, but I think. What makes Atom interesting is just, you know, because it's open source, there's so many projects that get created either using Atom or Electron, which is like the shell, the application shell of Atom. Um, now that, you know, Atom is really changing in ways that I don't think any of the people who worked on Atom were really quite, you know, prepared for when it was released, like in a really good way. Um, and so it's been fun just as a user. And for me, I mean... I like to tweak my text editor to make things a little bit easier, but I'm pr- I'm a pretty bare bones person, you know. I'm not a heavy heavy customizer of you, my text editor. You don't mean BB um, Edit though, I assume. No, <laughs> that's no. It's going to throw a whole monkey wrench in this discussion. <laughs> I just I really I really enjoy when I can sit down with a colleague and just like immediately start typing in their editor without like ridiculously crazy things happening or like having to be like oh yeah don't press this or oh I overrode this obvious shortcut to do this esoteric thing or whatever um, I find that that's a pain in the butt and so it's pretty cool now that you know a lot of GitHubers use Atom even people who are pretty heavy Vim users just you know moved over use, you know build their updates and packages uh, in JavaScript now and then use Vim mode to still sort of get the, the juice uh, that they can't quite give up, but it's, it's, it's been cool that, you know, now it's sort of growing on its own. It's got a pretty big community behind it. And I've been fussing with a couple packages and it's surprisingly easy to get into because, you know, we all write a fair amount of JavaScript or 
the majority of the stuff's in CoffeeScript right now uh, on Atom. So, is is it going to stay that way? Have they made a public comment about that? Um, I don't know. Um, I do not know. And I don't want to misspeak. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure that um, you can use um, Babel to, yeah, sure. I think, you know, make some uh, juice and not have to go straight up CoffeeScript land, but it's a little bit outside of my uh, knowledge base to say yay or nay. It's really, um, so sort of as a consistent user through the entire period, I've been shocked at how quickly things have moved with Adam. Like it's moved quick. Yeah. Things have progressed at a pretty even clip the whole way, you know, from the initial, I'm not sure it was called beta or alpha release through one Oh, um, it, it had to feel great to be part of that team. Right. Cause, cause it, it I mean, I don't know what their expectations were for it, but it, uh, geez, it seems like whatever their expectations were for Adam's success, they, they've been reached. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that they've, they've really been uh, able to harness the power of the community. Yeah. There's like community members that know a very specific subset of, you know, how to make Chromium faster or how to do this rendering faster or whatever. And then this community member will come in and just be like, here you go. I made it twice as fast as it was, you know, <laughs> yeah. in comparison to having to, you know, do all that little stuff on, on your own. Um, there's a really interesting story actually about like the autocomplete mechanism because like GitHub had, uh, or Adam had an autocomplete mechanism in it, but it wasn't very good. And so like the community sort of like was like, Oh, well we're going to make it obviously better. You know, it's just going to be faster. You're not going to have to like do this crazy key keyboard shortcut to get it to show up. And, um, and it's going to find the methods that you're actually looking for and not kind of this like, okay thing. It's called uh, autocomplete plus. And so autocomplete plus actually is now like merged back into the core of Adam. Um, and so it's like little things like that where, you know, someone who cares very, you know, very specifically about one thing, um, or a group of people can go in and, you know, make a big change and then actually get it, you know, merged in or potentially just be a go-to package that never actually gets, you know, connected back into the base. But that's one less thing that the very small, uh, you know, Adam team at GitHub has to, deal with autocomplete plus was a huge win. I think maybe this, aside from performance improvements, which I want to talk about a little bit more in a second, I think that that was the single biggest sort of impact to my daily use of that. Adam was, was that, uh, that package being, uh, I think I used it before it was introduced back into the core, but that package existing and then coming back into the core. Yeah. I think it also kind of started to show, um, you know, early users, like this is an IDE, like, even though it's not like, or it can be an IDE, I should say, like it, right. it doesn't have to be, but it has those hooks. Whereas I think when it first came out, it was kind of like below sublime and features, but above like text edit, you know? Yeah. I think <laughs> that that's so, fair. I think that auto, autocomplete plus was like, no, 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 look what you can do. And I think it spawned a bunch of, you know, cool new packages too. Yeah. I think that the, and this will sound a, a little bit critical, but I think the big question for Adam that I hear people ask that are, uh, that aren't huge fans, but I would also ask it is, you know, when's the performance story going to be great? It's sure. gotten so much better. Cause at first I think it was like maybe bad. And, and yeah. now I'd say it's okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know better than okay. You know, I, good would be a stretch to me. Uh, yeah. 
but okay. Like I think file launch or opening is slow. Uh, large files it really has some trouble with. Uh, well, it doesn't even open really large files, but even kind of medium-sized files it has some trouble with. And I know that they've done a ton to improve rendering performance. So it does make me wonder, like, you know, what is the ceiling um, given the current state of JavaScript and Chromium and kind of laptop performance? And, like, how close to that ceiling are we? And, you know, how how much are we just going to have to wait for the sort of the the physical limitations to lift and how much is there left to do? And I really don't know. Yeah, I think that it's a kind of a, I mean, the good news is that because Atom is ultimately built on top of Chromium, you know, which is like the engine that runs Chrome, uh, it, you're going to get a lot of improvements for free. And it's in Google's best interest, I think, to continue to improve Chromium and all the interesting use cases that come from Chromium that aren't just browsers mm-hmm. because optimizing JavaScript for a client app, you know, in your browser is probably a completely different ballgame than a text editor just because of the way, like, you know, that that document that you're looking at has a, a DOM to it. You know, it's got elements on it. And and so it's a whole different ballgame. And I think that, you know, the cool thing for Adam is that regardless of what the Adam team does, um, they're still going to be able to take advantage of updates to... Um, you know, node to Chromium to anything, you know, that's going to make it faster, um, that has a much wider swath of the community in comparison to just, you know, Adam, the text editor. Because I think it, if it was just Adam, the text editor, maybe with some sort of custom JavaScript engine or something like that, then you're definitely, um, you know, up a creek without a paddle. It would take a lot of community effort or, you know, corporate sponsorship, I guess, to, to get enough, uh, get enough momentum to make those deep, deep changes. But because it's on Chromium, I think the, I think the future is bright. Yeah. Shades. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, and for me, Hey, I don't, I think okay is, is about good enough for me right now. Like in other words, like before I was supporting Adam because I thought that it was the right thing for the community. Like I, I thought the world was better if we, if we had Adam and a good Adam one Oh, so I was going to use it just, just, you know, to sort of, uh, you know, vote with my usage, I suppose. But now it, that's not the case. Now I just like it. And you know, the, the one, the, the one issue I'd say is I wish the performance was a bit better, but not so much so that I would switch back to, you know, name your similar thing. I guess sublime text would be the most similar now. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the, the thing that maybe rankles some people is that sublime text is super fast. It just is, right? you know, and I don't really know yeah. all that much about the details of how, uh, it's built. Uh, but, uh, oh man, fast. So, you know, Hey, we'll, we'll see. But if I, uh, if someone's listening that, and I assume many people that listen have not used Adam, uh, you should give it a shot. It's, I think good for, good for the world that it exists. And it's a good, especially as of one Oh things stabilizing and being fast enough to be okay. It's a, yeah, it's a and even if you know, even if you just want to like, give it a look for, um, I just think it's really cool to uh, like make your text editor do something that's cool or interesting to you. 
you know, in, 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 without having to learn a ton of new things to do that. Um, you know, if you write JavaScript or you write CoffeeScript, then, you know, you'll be able to dive in and make a change. Or if you're a designer, I think that's like the really cool thing. Yeah, CSS, right? And CSS is your thing. Like, you can change significant <laughs> parts of how your, your editor looks or feels, um, without even touching any JavaScript. So I, I think it's great. I think it's, uh, worth checking out, even if you're not interested in, uh, changing your editor, you yeah. know, just as a sort of new thing to sort of hack on. Um, Adam.io is uh, the site, and you can go check it out. It's pretty, it's pretty neat. It's coming, come a long way uh, very quickly. So worth worth checking out, I think. Cool. All right, let's let's uh, let's take a quick step aside and and talk about this format. I think this works. This whole like pick three topics and go deep on them. It's working for me. How yes, you I agree. <laughs> All right, back to back to the show. I concur. <laughs> <laughs> back to the show. Okay, you picked Adam one zero for number one. Uh, I'll pick number two if you don't mind. I'm going to go RSpec three three. Uh, so RSpec three three was released in the last two weeks or so. I think I've got the uh, I've got the announcement up here somewhere. It was on June twelfth. Okay, so like three or four weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago, I guess. So three, three was released and I, I found it to be an amazing release. Now, do you use our spec day today? I don't. Hmm. Okay. Th- that's either going to make this conversation more or less interesting. <laughs> no, it's going to be, I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, I have used our spec when I used to, um, consult a fair bit. Um, so I'm very familiar with it using it today, but right now most of my tests are in a mini test. Gotcha. So, you know, I'm not religious by any stretch on this, but I, I use RSpec when I choose. And I, you know, I don't mind using something else. Uh, I don't mind using Minitest if someone else chose. But but if I choose, I use RSpec. And one of the reasons is I just love the guy. I mean, I don't know him, but I love the work that the guy does that maintains it. Uh, Myron Marston, do you know him? I do not. He So he maintains RSpec, and there's a pretty decent-sized team that... Uh, contributes to our spec. So obviously it's not just him. I think that they, so yeah, they said that there are 200 separate pull requests from 50 or just under 50 contributors for three, three alone. So it's a, you know, big project with lots of help, but he does a huge amount of the work and he is really good, like committed to semantic versioning, um, which I, I like a lot, uh, uh, focus sort of on a, on a combination of new features and doing a really good job of sort of, I don't know, stewarding the framework in general. But anyway, so three, I, I don't, even though I use our spec, I, I don't like pay attention to what's being committed every day. Like I do some projects that I'm more deeply into. I just sort of use it. Right. So in my email box or not email box, Twitter feed, I suppose I see our spec three, three was released. And, you know, given that I use it every day, I opened it up and took a look at the changes and it was like the most bang up release I could imagine. And I have gotten daily benefit out of the features every single day since it came out, which is cool for such a mature project to have like that many notable changes, you know, this far into its existence. So shall I pitch you on the big ones? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So I don't mean, many tests may have some of these, but you can tell me. Uh, so one thing that they added was an only failures option. So let's say you run your entire test suite and it has 10 failures. Then after that, you can run, uh, you know, RSpec 
a dash dash only dash failures uh, as an option. And it will only rerun the set of, uh, the set of specs that failed. So if let's say you had 10 failures, right. Uh, and you make a change and you want to see how that change, you know, addressed some of the failures from the last run and you run it, it will only run those 10. And then, you know, you'll see fix one out of the 10 or whatever and, and so on and so forth. So the next time you run dash dash only failures, it'll run just the nine and, you know, so on until you're done. Um, super, super useful feature. Like I use it all the time now, basically my workflow. If I'm, if I'm like working on something big is I make all the changes, do, you know, run the test locally on the, the file that I'm working on, run my entire test suite. If anything fails, or if I'm like doing a merge and something fails or whatever, then from there forward, I run only failures until I get to zero. It's awesome. Like super great workflow. Is is there some yourself? Do you find yourself ever like running, you know, running only failures? So you could get the 10 failure, then you run them and you, you know, go down to eight and then five and then zero. And then like, and then when you run again, do you find that there's like more failures? Or do you find that like you never introduce more failures while trying to like whittle down your list of <laughs> or initial failures? Well, you know, never is strong. <laughs> if it's possible to have jacked something up before I've done it. So like, yeah, yes, I, but I don't know, maybe one out of 25 times that would happen, you know? So, Interesting. uh, like clearly worth it. If I was to compare going the only failures option versus, you know, running the whole, the whole thing, I guess again and again. Oh, I, I saved, I, I bet I saved like an hour a week or something. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, which is like, a, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so do you use guard or something to run this or do you just do it strictly by the command line? I do not use guard. I have mm. I, I, guard is on a list of things. This would be a fun list to, to discuss someday, but it's on the list of things that I have tried many times and never stuck to like, like running at five in the morning, <laughs> running at five in the morning, our guard have something in common. Um, yeah. so for people who haven't used guard, what, how would you describe guard? I guess. Yeah. Guard like spies on your file system. And if it sees a change, it reruns the, or not reruns. It runs the specs in the like directory corresponding to the file that you changed. Yeah. Basically. And then, you know, has that, that's like the default feature set. And then of course does a million other things related to easy spec running if you want it to. Yeah. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. 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 I, I, in, in my day to day, I generally am running like a test at a time. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Me the, too. You know, my tests run super slow and so it's uh it's not really tenable to you know even run like an entire file at times which isn't great but you said that like a, as a the matter is that like a point of pride that you run your test slow or it sounded no, to me like it's, it, like, it's, like like you know i cook slow i cook my pork slow 
No, it's like feigned defense, you know, where it's <laughs> where I am like it's kind of slow. I know that's bad, but it's what it is. What it is right now, <laughs> right? And so most of the time, it's you know relying on CI to catch the bigger failures. And so um, sometimes I'll, I'll use Guard and I'll focus on like a test or a subset of tests that I think are related to what I'm working on. Um, but again, that's not always uh, excellent. So this is this is a pretty interesting feature. I do not know if this is something that's baked with mini tests. I've never used it. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So right. um, this, is, this is pretty cool. Me- one one meta note that we've talked about the only failures option on uh, you know this RSpec three three. This is a really good change log. Like this blog post. Oh, it's in- this is Mike Myron. This is Marcin at his best. This is how he does things. Like every communication is like this. It's great. Yeah, it's really it's really great because it's it's. Uh, like the technical writing usually either spends way too much time talking about how things used to work, uh, you know, or uh, way too little time talking about why you should care. <laughs> like this thing happened. We now you can use this thing, and like they just, you know, suppose you know exactly how valuable that is. But it's pretty neat that a lot of these, you know, have a, a very clear either this is the technical reason we added this, or you know. It used to work like this. Now it works like that, and so let us show you why that is valuable. This is this is pretty excellent. So yeah, it's definitely he, worth taking a look, even if you don't use RSpec, just to get an idea of how to write a public uh, change log. I think. Yeah, totally agree. Like I think the first example in the changes, and this is going to be my second feature I like a lot, uh, is a great example of the writing you're talking about. So the way that he describes the changes, unique IDs for every example and example group. Who says historically RSpec examples have been identified primi- primarily by file location, and then he gives an example. So I have had I have this issue that he's describing all the time, which is I have a shared set of examples, like you know mm-hmm. examples for uh, polymorphic type or duct type, you know uh, X, mm-hmm. and then I include those into the spec, and then you know anything that has that behavior that has like the the module mixed in, then we'll get like a bunch of tests that tested it it you know behaves like things that have that module should behave which is great i think that's like a i really like that approach to to testing features that are composed in but it totally screwed up your ability to run one test at a time or not one test yeah. at a time but a specific test because right you know then when it when it thought line 23 or when it looked up line 23 it would look it up in the context of the expanded um spec including the examples that you would you know included in so the feature that they added was to like id the sequentially the examples so you could say like the second you know you can read the blog post for the yep. details here but the, the second spec in the first group oh man is that a great feature like such a you know you know that the people that are working on our spec use our spec because of this feature because it's yeah. the sort of thing that would be hard to describe as being important until you need it day to day, and then it's like super important. So, in mini tests, I do not believe has this because I've, I've chatted with someone else about it. Yeah, no. Usually, it's either you know uh, by test name um, or whatever. But yeah, no. This this isn't uh, applicable for us. Yeah. All right, so the the last one that and you can read the blog post for like the ten features that he outlines. But the the third one that I wanted to mention that I love because I don't think that we see enough of this sort of feature in projects is is the bisect feature. 
So if you search mm-hmm. for bisect, you'll see it. So here's the deal. You've got a, uh, you run your whole suite of tests. You see an error in that depends on ordering, right? So like sometimes the a test fails, sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the, the order that the tests were run. And I don't know about you, but when that happens, it is, it is, a, <laughs> it is a dark moment. Yeah. Right? Cause you're like, Oh my God, I had plans for the afternoon and now I've got to hunt down where the hell this thing is failing. So, uh, what bisect does, you just pass dash dash bisect and it narrows down the order into like a minimal reproduction case to say, okay, here is, uh, you know, here is an order that fails. Uh, and it, and it does it by like recursively going through the, uh, uh, different orders to find ones that fail in a, in a, you know, the most efficient way that, that it can do it. What a great feature. Yeah, no, that is great. I like that a lot. And I, I don't, I like, I feel like I, I, I feel like computers are, this is like using computers for what they're good for, which is just right. being, you know, able to do ridiculous amounts of work the same, you know, with the same degree of ease as a little bit of work. And, uh, you know, I don't think enough, like, I don't think enough of my projects do something like this where I'm like, okay, what is a computer good at? What can I like, what would sound ridiculous to do unless you had the ability to just unleash the hounds on something? And, uh, anyways, love it. Love the feature. Awesome. Now, since it came out, I've only had one instance of an ordering bug, which is funny. Given that it, <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Don't I'm, be upset. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I, this is my vaccine, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> exactly. Against You're ordering prepared bugs. prepared for it. It doesn't happen. Yeah. So anyways, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll close off this one by saying uh, uh, that our spec is, is alive and well. And 3.3, I think, is an awesome release. And I'm going to echo what Kyle said, which is, if if nothing else, even if you're like the the most devoted mini test user ever, check out this uh, RSpec three three has been released blog post for how to do it. <laughs> right, this is how to do it. All right, before the next uh, topic, we should do our sponsor for today. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now it's one of the two sponsors from last week. <laughs> the, the the sponsors that will never hear the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny to me. Okay, so sponsor for today is is Codeship, our uh, most frequent sponsor on the show. And I've got a good Codeship story that relates to our next topic, uh, coincidentally. Okay, Codeship. So Codeship is a hosted continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up uh, your CI uh, workflow with CodeShip in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports GitHub and uh, Bitbucket. Am I allowed to say that now that you're on the show? Oh, definitely. Okay. So it supports both. <laughs> uh, you can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. Uh, and if you visit CodeShip.com slash 5x5Ruby, you'll get 20% off any plan for the next three months. Uh, again, five by five Ruby is both the uh, code and the, uh, the path off of codeship.com to, uh, to get that deal. Uh, so want to hear my codeship story that relates to, to this yes, next topic. Please. Okay. So I like codeship. I've, uh, I've used them as my CI solution, uh, 
for a while, maybe a year, and uh, am a paying customer uh, <laughs> in, in, in spite of being sponsored by them. And uh, uh, anyhow, so I use them, uh, I think, to like a medium degree of complexity. I think people do all sorts of interesting workflow things, and I think a lot of people use it in the most basic way possible, and I'm somewhere in between here and there. But our next topic is about uh, building API documentation. And uh, I won't go into the CodeShip part of the story to begin with, but CodeShip ended up being like a key player in how, on a project I'm working on right now, we went about building our API documentation as part of the CI process, which I think is oh, interesting, super great. Yeah. So before I dive into that, tell me about. So you work on, you work on the API team at GitHub. I right. do. I work on the platform team at GitHub, which uh, includes uh, the API, um, the GitHub API, and our webhooks and services. So anything that um, you know something happens on github.com and uh, we send a notification to chat that that's uh, our team as well. Oh, so this is interesting in two ways then, because for one, uh, the work you do has sort of API documentation implications and CodeShip is like the, like one of the, you know, obvious examples of someone that consumes the hell out of the work that you do every day. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So tell me about your approach uh, either at GitHub or in general to, um, to the problem of how the heck do we document this API in a way that's going to be accurate and clear? Cause you know, sure. I think both of those are big challenges. Yeah. Um, so I mean at GitHub, we, uh, use a sort of quasi homebrewed system to document changes. Uh, so we use, uh, Nanoc, which is like an old school, oldish school Ruby library that ultimately builds um, all of these markdown files with some Ruby sort of included in them uh, out to HTML. And then we just serve HTML um, using uh, GitHub pages. Uh, So it's pretty boring in general. Um, It's open source. And so the cool thing is that there are a lot of cases where, um, you know, just sort of normal GitHub users, uh, can go in and when they see a problem with the docs, they can just go in and it's really simple because they just, you know, pull this repository down, it's marked down files and they can, you know, make the change themselves and then we'll merge it in. So that's sort of like the first part. The the kind of bummer about that is that it is a completely manual process. When we make a change to an API or if we add a new API, um, those docs aren't automatically generated. Um, and so there's a couple reasons why that's a bummer. <laughs> the first the most obvious one is that it takes human time to document things. Uh, and so that slows things down quite a bit. Uh, or, or the humans or the humans don't take time. <laughs> to document yeah, or, or, or exactly or it just doesn't get documented um, i <laughs> right. can say pretty safely at github that that rarely happens but um only because we also cheat a little bit and we have some great people who only do documentation so um, i do write docs when i create apis so it's not like throw it over the wall situation at all but there's some people who are real professionals at writing these docs and can help you know us software developers really uh, get things Get it, get it a little bit better. But I think that we would definitely, uh, well, I don't want to speak for anyone. I think, I think it would definitely do a service to move to uh, a more automated, you know, method of uh, documentation. I think that it's a lot more difficult if you're not in a greenfield project. Um, 
but maybe that's not entirely true. Uh, just generally speaking, I think there's a huge cost upfront to move to an automated solution. If you're not deciding, Hey, we're going to build this new thing and let's document it the right way. Let's use this automatic, automatic generation tool. Um, so I mean, I, uh, I think though, I will say while I think documenting the sort of ins and outs of, Hey, you know, what parameters can I pass to this API is important. I think, Still, that the biggest problem with most APIs is a lack of architecture um, documentation. Just sort of like, so you want to do this like generally accepted uh, thing with our API. You know, what's the order of the calls? How should you right. respond through those calls? That is sort of rarely written about, uh, in my opinion. And I think that's the secret sauce to API documentation um, because you can manually build all your docs. It'll just take a ton of time, but writing that really in depth, you know, here's a use case. Here's how you use our API. Do you do that use case? Um, there's not a ton of people that do that particularly well. So it'd be nice to get rid of that first part of API documentation, which is just the nuts and bolts. <laughs> so we can all focus on the like, you know, apple pie side of, you know, getting everything just right and explaining to everyone that here's how you should architect your, uh, you know, solution against our API. Spend a lot more time on the human side instead of just the, please pass this header in order to receive a response from us. So I have an interesting, I have a good story that exactly sort of illustrates the point you just made that, that happened like, I don't know, 10 days ago. So I'm working on this application that we did what you said, which was we sort of went the automated route to build the mm-hmm. app, the documentation at the lowest level. Now, here's what I mean by that. We use this, this library called RSpec API documentation, I think. But okay. Look for the name while I'm talking. Uh, yeah. RSpec underscore API underscore documentation. And the gist of it's pretty simple. It, it's like a, I guess a DSL for, uh, describing requests and providing some like metadata about the requests. And then it, uh, runs those as, so it's, it's, you know, it's in our spec. So it's running specs to make sure that what, either what you're describing actually works, you know, like, like it actually sends what you said and it, you know, receives, um, something that, that, you know, contains what you thought and has the status that you expected, etc. Um, so that's cool. In other words, like that. So therefore, you know, that whatever is documented actually works on whatever system or, you know, whatever version of the app is being built at the time. And then the second thing it does is it generates the static files too, as sort of a byproduct of that process. Um, so then we'll get back to this part of the story with CI, but you can imagine. So like step one is you, you just run them as specs and say, okay, like, is my API behaving in the way that I expect? And then step two is you say, okay, yes, it is. Now I'm going to generate, um, static files that represent everything. So anyways, we had done that, but what the consumer of the API, so this is like an application where, uh, one set of people is building the application, but then another set of people completely unrelated to, to, to them, at least in day-to-day work are the ones that are using it, you know? So they're, they're like the consumers of the API. Um, and, uh, what they needed more than, well, I don't know, more than 
as much as the sort of resource level documentation was exactly what you said, which is like the series of 12 calls that get you from point zero to like, I did everything I was trying to do. Um, and what I did, which, which is, uh, kind of a crappy answer to your point is I wrote an integration test in Ruby that just like one test that did this probably literally 20 different things that that they needed to do to get from where they started to where they wanted to go. Mm -hmm. But Ruby is so easy to read, um, that I just sent the spec. Like I just said, here, here is an example of this path. Like I, like this is running on staging right now and works and just follow that looking up the individual, uh, documentation for the resources that it references. And, you know, like there are two ways of looking at it. One was they were over the moon. Like I got three emails saying, thank you so much for doing that. Cause that like really saved the day. <laughs> like, otherwise we don't know what the heck to do. Um, but the other way of looking at it is like, really, I actually just emailed the Ruby R spec file and said, you know, follow the, follow the list of comments. Basically. Really? It's kind of, kind of lousy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you know, I think that it's, it, it, I think it's really funny because like we spend so much time getting just the, the human, what am I trying to say? Getting API documentation uh, in a human format that is ultimately just a repre- representation of what the machine expects. You know, it's just like, yep. you know, use these parameters, they should be strings, they should be this long or whatever. But I think that at the end of the day, you know, we're like barely surpassing SOAP, you know, or like one of the many uh, situations where it's like, here, download this thing and load it into your, you know, code editor or your browser or into your, you know, client tool. And we'll just make sure that what you're doing is right. You know, I think that like, we haven't come that far in API land, uh, besides, you know, making, uh, API docs, like have code side by side to the description of, you know, what it is trying to do. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that usually the hardest part of the system is gluing together multiple API calls to accomplish like a real world problem. Yep. And so I, th- I vote anything that can make the, you know, machine representation to human back to machine representation easier is definitely a win. So I think this is an interesting uh, project. I wonder if there's, you know, I'm curious to hear from anyone who maybe had used this uh, in a non green project. Cause I think that that's where the, the pain maybe is, I guess if you already have really good tests, you know, from the very beginning, your tests are really clear and clean then adding this in would probably give you a huge win. But I'm curious about the more say organic projects. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, so I'm going to bet against what you said. I think that if you, okay. t- if you t- like, if you had the opportunity to, maybe you would, because RSpec would be easy to drop in just for this purpose. So if you yeah. just dropped in RSpec and used this to describe, you know, an endpoint, uh, and I, I only think this one, I think this one only works on the, uh, like the, the standard API, not the, the, the webhook side. But I yeah. think you'd find it actually it'd be pretty easy to drop in um, because it's sort of like a, I, I mean, no matter what exists under the hood, I mean, you're ab- above the waterline of your API. It just is an API, right? And that's what this is interacting with. So 
I don't know. I mean, I it'd be an interesting thing to test. I think I think you may find. I think that actually you'd find that part to be fine, but I think you'd find that that the project doesn't totally answer the question. At least I haven't found that it does yet. Although this could be my lack of experience with it, that it doesn't answer the question. How do I sort of document the series of steps and their rationale that that are required? Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Uh, so here's the code ship story uh, with it. Uh, so here's here like the process that we're using to actually build the documentation on this project. I think is great. So here here's what we do. You develop the the documentation, you know, normally just as as these specs as part of the project, and then uh, all you do is is commit them in, and then our CI process will run all the tests, which include the tests related to the documentation, which I still think is the greatest thing ever. And then when they're successful, uh, then let me think about the exact workflow. Yeah. So at that point, what CodeShip does is it runs the, uh, it runs the command to build the um, documentation, the static files. Mm -hmm. It then because those are not built by default for like the developer doesn't have to worry about that at all. And in fact, that whole directory is, is get ignored. So you like, you don't even like, we're not dealing with these, you know, all these static files in the repository in general, but what CodeShip does is we have it so that it runs the, uh, or it, it checks out a brand, a separate branch and then runs the command to generate all of the static files for the API docs and then force adds them into the repository and then commits that to GitHub on a branch that's like the, you know, including documentation branch. And then we push that to GitHub. And then when that hits GitHub, then the CI server says, okay, I not only have like a all green project, but I also have all the docs built. And then it takes that and spits it to staging and production. Interesting. Which I think is super great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely the way to do it. If you're going to do it, do it in your seat, like building docs in your CI is definitely the way to go. Yeah. So it was like the combination of like RSpec plus GitHub plus CodeShip. That was like, yeah, that'd be a really interesting uh, workflow. If you have an open source project and you use something like this or you build it, uh, you know, which I'm sure is sort of how a part of this came out with like, you know, the relish docs and everything or whatever. Um, but you know, to be able to say build, you know, build your docs, commit them to the GitHub pages branch or like whatever branch you choose for that. And then, uh, you know, let those docs be like auto, you know, auto served back for GitHub pages for a GitHub pages site for your project or whatever, since, you know, that's, that's all sort of baked into, um, yeah, that's really interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't generally, I generally don't like nail those DevOpsy sort of things, so I was pretty proud of this one. <laughs> I was like, "Well, this one's good." <laughs> it only takes one. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I've got a string of like eighty examples of poor <laughs> execution on this particular topic, but but one recent one that's really good. <laughs> so perfect. I'll take it. Yeah. All right. So anyhow, let's uh, recap that topic. So. RSpec API documentation to take a look and then check out CodeShip on like, I think that it'd be easy to use CodeShip and have no idea that that would be very easy to do. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I use CodeShip a ton and I love it. So anyhow, uh, so we're about 50 minutes in. I think we've got time 
for our open source contribution notes before we uh, call it a night. What do you think? Okay, awesome. All right, you go first. Uh, yeah, so uh, what I've been working on, uh, which is a pretty small change, but still pretty awesome, is uh, um, updating a package uh, for Atom. So if you go to github.com slash Atom slash open dash on dash GitHub, um, this package is auto-shipped with... Um, Adam, I believe, and it allows you to basically, you know, look at any selection or any line and open it on the GitHub website or open up to blame or to history or anything like that. So in my workflow, the main thing I do is at GitHub, when we write uh, pull requests or pull request comments, we frequently reference code. And one of the things that is uh, sort of a problem with that is if you reference code using the branch, then as that using the branch name as part of the URL, which is sort of the automatic way if you're using the github.com you know, site. Uh, whenever you go to that URL in the future, chances are if you're looking at specific lines, those lines will have moved because you're referencing a branch instead of the actual SHA. And so a little trick if you didn't know about this is when you're on any um, file on github.com, you could press the Y key and it'll change the URL to the SHA-based version of the URL. And so generally speaking, we try to use that as much as we can so that way when people are reading back through the pull request or the issues, you're looking at exactly what we saw at that moment in time. And so I'm trying to update that package um, to use that SHA-based representation of the URL instead of using the branch name. Um, so instead of it being sort of uh, through a reference, we're going to look at the uh, that exact version, that one snapshot in time, uh, anytime I paste that uh, URL to someone else. And so um, luckily I can cheat a little bit and work on that and... Um, you know, the maintainers also work at the same company that I do. <laughs> right. And so I can be like, Hey, does this look good or what changes need to be done? And so, uh, luckily the Daniel who's on the Adam team, um, has been sort of working with me to hopefully change the default functionality of that. But, um, again, that's a really small change and really my first true foray into Adam's packaging, uh, besides just sort of hacking on things that never ship. Um, and so it's, it was pretty fun to just sort of jump in there. Um, there's a bunch of those types of packages, uh, that ship with Adam. And so I would recommend if any of that stuff bugs you and it's in the Adam org on github.com, uh, just submit a pull request and, and make the change that you want, or at least suggest the change. And then people can come in and comment and, and, and make, you know, make their, make their point known. Uh, so hopefully that'll get merged this week and then it'll go out with the next, I think the next version of Adam, since it's part of the core project. But yeah, it's a very small change, I think, but still, I think it's going to, improve my life a ton uh even though it's probably like you know 10 lines of code or something yeah but 10 lines of of coffee script when you don't generally write uh coffee script for sort of public consumption that's a that's like a 500 lines of ruby code maybe i had you on mute <laughs> I said the most unbelievably insightful thing, and it, I was going to say it's lost <laughs> crickets. <laughs> we just put yeah. four seconds of crickets in. So, uh, ten lines of I was saying ten lines of coffee script code is like the equivalent of you know two hundred lines of Ruby code, though. Yeah, I was going to say it's at least two hundred lines. So, yeah. Well, I think that that uh, the thing I like about that. Uh, contribution aside that, uh, from the fact that it relates directly to our, uh, first topic is that, uh, it's really like a practical 
fix to something that absolutely everyone should care about. Um, so I like it a lot. Yeah, I'm all for. I mean, I'm not a huge um, open source contributor. You know, I, I don't. I don't think I have a ton of time to really shepherd an entire project across the finish line. And so most of my contributions are these very sniper style, you know, this thing bugs me or this is an actual bug and here I fixed it, you know, and then I submit the PR. And so most of my open source is sort of spread out over a ton of different projects instead of me really diving into a single one. Yeah. I think that, I mean, one's approach to open source, uh, my take is that as long as your first instinct when you see something in a project you use is to say, can I help? Like, like can I help yeah. fix this thing that I just had a thought about? As long as that's your instinct and like you, you make motions in that direction, that that's what I hope for people to do. You know, that that's much more important than someone writing the next R spec. Yeah. But I think that I do think too, though, that, um, the, the project does have a big say in that, you know, if the documentation is clear, if it says like the how and the why you mm-hmm. should, uh, you know, go about making the changes that you want to make, uh, it makes a big difference because it allows someone like me or honestly, someone who doesn't have a ton of programming experience to hop into a project and make a small change, you know, and, and be received in a gracious manner, even if the change will never get merged, you know, that that's a huge difference compared to projects that really want a few big contributors, uh, you know, that mainly are going to focus on that project or at least, you know, really going to dive in on that project. Uh, and so I think it's interesting too, to see, you know, how a project's documented. Are there scripts that can automatically bootstrap your environment? Like things like that go a long way to allowing me or, you know, other people who prefer to just hop around and, and make that one quick change, uh, you know, to actually get that change in instead of just maybe opening an issue or doing nothing or just going to complain on Twitter or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I think you said the key thing. So one, is it easy to get the environment set up Two, that should be yes for most things, but anyhow, so that's one, two is the test suite good. Um, and like currently passing and like everyone counts yeah. on it and three are the people not jerks. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> if those three things are true, then, you know, it's pretty easy to get contributions and man, it helps a lot. If any of those three break though, yikes. Yeah. Not yeah. so good. But you're totally right. All right. I had two interesting contributions this past uh, week or two. Um, so the first one I thought was fun because it, I fixed it on leap second day and it related to time zones completely co- coincidentally. But, <laughs> you know, I felt like it was a good, uh, I don't know, <laughs> it was symbolic. Um, so have you ever used the gem ice cube, like ice underscore cube? I don't think so. Is it like time cop? Uh, Maybe. <laughs> n- no. So time no. cop is like, like monkey patching yeah, no, time. Right. Like it's monkey patching time for testing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's time cop. Ice cube is, uh, Oh, uh, like a way to describe schedules. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Super, super helpful. So like, if you have anything that where, where you need the ability to define, like take user input and have it represent sort of the parameters for some sort of recurring schedule. And then on that schedule, do something. Ice Cube is a super, super helpful library that like makes that easy. So one of its features is that it, um, it 
it reads from and writes to iCal, which is also super cool because there are a bunch of libraries that do that too. So like there are JavaScript libraries that'll have like a nice, you know, recurrence definition wizard or little widget and then spits out iCal, right? As it's like serialization format, I guess. And then you can read from that or write to that as your like serialization format. Um, which is, which is awesome. Like, I think it's a great feature. It's exactly what you need if you, if you're dealing with this sort of thing, but it had a bug related to, uh, time zones shocker, uh, which is like if, if the, if the iCal schedule had inside of it, um, times that were defined in a time zone, it would, it would, it wouldn't pick it up. It like, you know, thought it was UTC and then screwed it up from there. So I fixed that bug, which I was pretty proud of. Awesome. I love bugs like that where it's, it's you know, 80% of the work was figuring out what the hell was wrong. Right, right, right. You know, like I have no idea how this works. I'm like, wow, why is this, you know, why why are my schedules all wrong? And what the hell is iCal? And uh. <laughs> I, mean, I knew what iCal was, but I didn't know much about the format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the format looks like something out of like a 1978 textbook it's or awesome. something. It's like a telegram. It is. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's like a much better. June stop. <laughs> it is. It's a better description Third than I would have stop. come up with. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so anyways, I fixed that one. And then in the process of that, I, I ran the test suite and it had a, a failing test. Even though when I looked at like the Travis build from the most recent, uh, or from like, you know, the master branch, um, it, it was passing, right? So I was like, what the heck? Well, turned out that, uh, there was a time zone bug in the test themselves that was revealed. Wow. Cause I'm in a different time zone than the guy that, that wrote the test yeah. or that the primary maintainer. So my two for one is that I, I not only fixed, uh, that sort of iCal bug in the actual library, but then fixed a time zone bug in the specs themselves. You ever notice, so this might, I don't know, this happens a lot at GitHub, but, like, you ever had a situation where, like, depending on what time of day you're running the test, right, it fails because, like, in that yes. magical window where it crosses over? Yes. Yeah. That happens a fair amount of time because, like, East Coast people work, you know, during the morning and then the West Coast people work a lot later. And so, like, you know, if you're one of those sad West Coast people who are, like, working at, you know... 9 p.m. Eastern or something like that. You get to like, deal with all the like random, you know, billing code or like whatever code is in your app that has to do with time all breaks once, you know, UTC crosses over or whatever. Exactly. Uh, or if your app is unfortunate enough to have a custom time zone built in as default, then you really get to, you know, just really relish in. Do, does anyone, that does anyone do that? Uh, you know, I don't think it's recommended anymore. <laughs> but I, I kind of feel like that's like the default scope of time zone of time, like management. Like yeah, you, you shouldn't use default scopes, and you shouldn't set a time zone in your yeah, app. But you know, but if you've made some bad choices, then maybe you're stuck <laughs> with those bad choices until you die. <laughs> right. You also shouldn't like get a bad a tattoo tattoo in your face. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like you could fix it, but it's going to be even more painful than the original problem. <laughs> my like uh, my superstition about that is that I try to never have the time zone that is that a test is in be the time zone that I am in. 
Like, it's unclear if this actually solves some subset of the problems, but I think it does. Like, and that, like, I'm like, okay, if it's possible yeah. that like my systems time zone could leak in here, like, I'm, I'm totally, there, there's no reason it should, but I'm like, I, I, I'm going to always set it in some other weird place just so that that couldn't be it. Right. Um, which probably doesn't matter, but, but it makes you feel better. It, oh, it right? definitely does. Yeah. <laughs> See, there you go. So my second open source contribution, I'm proud of this one, which is why I'm going to mention it is I, I finished getting polymorphic support into JSON API resources. Uh, oh. uh, I know. Well, I didn't start it. So someone else wrote the initial implementation, you know, and I'm going to, there's a possibility that the guy that wrote it may be like, like I, I could imagine a world where he'd find the, the following offensive, but I don't think he will. So the guy that wrote the initial stab at um, polymorphic support for JSON API resources, like really didn't exactly know what he was doing. Like, and I don't mean that he does not a program. I mean, he's a fine programmer, I think, but he hadn't worked in, um, he hadn't worked on JSON API resources before, and I don't think he had submitted much code to any open source project ever, right? Sure. So he's like in deep on two fronts, um, but he needed that feature. And like, if you need it, you need it. So the idea is if you've got like a polymorphic um, has one relationship is what he needed, right? So like something yeah. like, you know, imageable or whatever, and then you need to, uh, you need to update it. Uh, JSON API resources, one of the main gaps that it still had was this, because it, it was a little bit of a pain to get in. And so he needed it, and I think was a bit of a, up a creek, and decided that he was going to get it in. And, you know, like, it wasn't the it wasn't the best code in the world, and it kind of missed some big things. Like, he just needed the reading side, not the updating side. So he just put in the part that he needed. But, yeah, yeah. And he didn't handle the read side of has many and, you know, et cetera, frankly. But, uh, I, I really admired him. Like, and I felt like the project, it really showed that the project's going in the right place where a guy like him, who's new to the project and somewhat new to open source felt like permission to give it a shot, you know, like to, to do, to, to see if he could get it in. And then I'm more familiar with the project. So I took his pull request and then built on top of it to finish out the feature because I needed it. I needed it too. And he was yeah. cool. He was like, oh man, thank you. This is good because we don't kind of need this done. And I was happy because he had done the initial legwork to actually figure out where the heck you even need to look to get this feature in. And uh, it got merged today. So I was pretty, pretty happy about it. That's awesome. Yeah, I always, I always love when there's like either my old PR or like a PR that I have like halfway across, but you know, either gave up or didn't know the answer or whatever, uh, you know, having someone come in that's just like, Oh, here, let me finish this other half for you with the half that like I know, uh, you know, the most about, I love that stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I like, I care so much about not to be sound cheesy, but like I care about the, cause I'm pretty involved in this project. I care about it being a project that, that people feel comfortable in, right. That like, someone would sure. feel like they could come and try to help and that we'd be completely thankful and like work with them. And, and it, so it just felt so good that someone would, would take a crack at something that was a little bit tricky. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really good. I am now number, number two on that project. 
Whoa. Look at me. Gunning for the top spot now? No, not at all. Like, (laughs) well, one, like, no. Two, uh, number one is, uh, 385 commits. I'm 50. So it's not really that close. It's like an order of magnitude. (laughs) And Larry Gebhardt, the guy that's number one, I mean, he's, he's basically read in the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I help out, help out, you know, basically I've got a big project that's on it. I decided back on when JSON API was on RC two that I was, was betting on it and, and decided therefore I'd bet on this as my like rails related project to make it easier. So since I've got a decent sized project on it, anytime I come up, come across anything that is broken or missing, I just do it. So, uh, but, but that's nothing compared to what he's done, which is like, you know, push the whole thing for a year, a year and a half or whatever. (laughs) Right. So anyways, that was my open source week this week. Awesome. Yeah. I'm hoping that, uh, this can keep going on a regular tilt and maybe hear what uh, some other people are doing. If, if any of the stuff that we're working on uh, inspires folks to go out and do something small, yeah, or big, you know, write a whole library maybe, but you know, small stuff is cool too. Yeah. I mean, I, so I'll just appeal directly. If whoever's listening, I don't care where you are in your development, um, sort of experience. And a lot of people that listen, I'd say are beginners to intermediates or maybe, maybe like early intermediate. Um, like just give it a shot. You'll, you'll feel good about it and everyone else will appreciate it too. So definitely. Well, that's our episode. Um, what do you think about this format? I loved it last week and I love it this week. <laughs> well, we kind of, we kind of did it. We kind of did it this week. I think the whole we way. Do it. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, it, no, I, like I think it. it's good. Yeah. And I, I love to hear, uh, you know, if there are more topics that people would like to, uh, you know, hear about or dive into, I think it'll be, I think it'll be good. Oh, yeah. Bring some subject uh, matter experts in every once in a while. Yeah. Good point. So, uh, here's our method. So we have a Slack, uh, channel, which is Kyle and I talking and we are pasting in possible show topics during the week, right? Just like paste the link in or whatever. So if anyone has a topic that you're interested in us covering, just tweet at us, either one of us or, or the show for that matter. Uh, and we'll just add it into the Slack channel. And if it's, uh, you know, seems interesting and, and timely, then we'll, uh, we'll cover it. Yeah. What'd you think of that, uh, uh, U S women's world cup victory tonight? You know, it was pretty great to watch. Um, right. A little anticlimactic at some points, but the, it was fun to watch. And they, uh, they kept playing hard through the whole game, which was awesome. I just like watching women's soccer. It, uh, I'm not a huge soccer or football fan, but man, it's, uh, I, it's like living in Connecticut, you know, we watch, or I watch, uh, the women's, uh, basketball, UConn women's basketball a lot. And they're just, they're so much more fun to watch than the guys in my humble opinion. And so I, I just love watching the game just cause they just kept fighting it out through the whole end. And there was a very small degree of shenanigan. Uh, you know, going on. Right. <laughs> it was very much just athleticism. That pretty, was that. Pretty darn good soccer, I thought too. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, during the the tournament, I've been practicing, so I've got you know, I've got 
twin girls in the way and, and have been practicing sort of being authentically into women's sports. <laughs> like really? Cause I'm like, okay, I watch a lot of sports and it, it wouldn't, uh, I'm sure that, that, um, if they have any interest whatsoever in sports, they will, you know, they will come along for that. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so I, but I, but I don't want it to be all guy sports. That seems awful. And unlike what you just said, I, I love basketball and really don't love women's basketball as much. Honestly, like I don't like, I like basketball enough that I'll watch whatever. So like, I'll watch it and I'll enjoy it. But, uh, I don't like it as much as the NBA, just like I don't like men's college basketball as much as the NBA. Uh, but women's soccer, I, I love, like, I think it's fun to watch. Um, and with no asterisk, not like fun to watch, but I'd rather watch the men. I, either one's fine. In fact, I think I liked watching the women a lot more than the men. So us USA. Yeah. Fourth of July weekend too. Pretty apropos. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up with uh, reminders of where everyone can reach, reach us. Yeah, so I'm uh, kdaigle on Twitter and GitHub, and uh, you can reach me via email at kdaigle at github.com. All right. I'm barely known on uh, Twitter and GitHub also, and uh, you cannot reach me at github.com, but either of those <laughs> are are fine. <laughs> so, all right, that, that that's a wrap for episode 192. Thanks. Awesome. Adios.